Okay, if we could all turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. And I won't make you stand and read today. I think you've been standing for a while, so we'll just read from the passage. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. I'll read from the scriptures. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So last week I mentioned that before the shades were coming, I would do three topical sermons. And so last week we looked at the life of Jonah, and learn lessons from him. And today we're going to be learning from the life of Jesus and his instruction to the Pharisees. Now the reason I chose this passage this morning were the unique words in verse 13. He actually said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. Well, I thought, wow, if it was important for the Pharisees to go and learn what it means to have compassion and not sacrifice, it's probably good that we also learn the same. If someone was to ask you, what did Jesus mean by that he desired compassion and not sacrifice, how would you answer that question currently? The reason I bring this up is because by the end of the service, I hope that you can answer it even more succinctly than you already can do so at the current moment. But the whole context of the story and what sparked his instruction in the first place was the response to the accusation made against Jesus as to who his choice of friends were, who he chose to socialize with in that culture. You'll notice in verse 10 that he was reclining at the table in a house with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees then came to Jesus' disciples and asked him privately in verse 11, why does your teacher choose to eat with basically these kind of people? So to understand the nature of who tax collectors and sinners are, let me just help you give a bit of a background. But tax collectors in that day were basically those who worked for the CRA, Canada Revenue Agency in today's culture. They did what the people do today. They ensured that the citizens of the nation gave a portion of their income to the government they lived under, to help with infrastructure and uh, the, the support of military, the army, and, and, and no doubt, like many, for greed to become wealthy. <laughs> now, it's important to remember who was in power in, in the time of Israel. Even though Israel was a Jewish nation, the Jews were not in power. The Romans were. And that drove the Jews crazy. It was a constant reminder that they were a conquered nation, but it was also a constant reminder they were ruled by people who had absolutely no regard for their God. The Mosaic Law 
and they saw them as unholy people, unclean. Now here's where it gets interesting. The Romans would employ tax collectors who were Jews to work for them. So you're a Roman government and you're employing the Jewish people to work for you. Now as a tax collector, what would that mean? That would mean you'd be collecting money from your own people. As a Jewish person working for the Romans, you're asking that your own people for money to support Rome. Now, as if this wasn't bad enough, your reputation for robbing from your own people in order to get personally wealthy was part of your MO. Two scriptures remind us of this. In John chapter 3 and verse 12, or Luke chapter 3 and verse 12, John the Baptist is baptizing people. And it says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do in keeping repentance? Like, what does our life need to look like? Jesus says, or John says, don't collect any more than you're required to. So Esther comes for, to pay her taxes, and I'm a tax collector. And the government of Rome says, you owe 100 denarii. And I would say to Esther, you owe 150 denarii. And she would pay me the 150. She has no way of keeping track if the Romans are, are legitimizing their claims. And I take 50 for myself and pocket, or give 100 to the government and pocket 50. There's no recourse for Esther. There's nothing she can do to basically go to Rome and say, hey, they're stealing from me. In, verse, in Luke 19 and verse 8, Zacchaeus comes to see Jesus, and he's a tax collector, and he's desperate to see him. And Jesus calls him into his home. And so when he arrives at Zacchaeus' house, the people saw this and began to mutter, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. If he was like, if he had a reputation of never cheated anybody in his life as a tax collector, there's no point in asking, making the claim, if I've cheated anybody. If I have a clean track record, I don't even mention that. So clearly Zacchaeus knows that there's been times of fraud in his life, and he was extremely, extremely wealthy. So the tax collectors were Jews who were hated by their own people and seen as traitors to their own people. And if you've ever seen the movie or the TV or the, the series, um, The Chosen, they do a really, really good job of showing you how much tax collectors were despised amongst their own people. I love one scene where um, uh, Matthew, uh, before he's called to serve Jesus as a disciple, he's paying somebody to drive him in a cart to his tax booth, and he hides under these blankets along with the produce to get to his, um, his place where the booth was, because he was afraid that if he was to walk the streets, he'd be mugged or hurt. And then he always had a Roman guard there to protect his life. So again, it was a great uh, scene in the, the show Chosen. But who are the sinners? One might think, well, that's everybody. Everyone's a sinner, right? We've all done things that are wrong, and we've all done things that we know we're guilty for. And besides that, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But sinners in Jesus' day meant more than how we've come to understand sinners. You see, even though it's widely debated as to what the term encompassed, we do know that it had something to do with a category for the most immoral people in Jesus' day. 
These are the most immoral. Now remember, what was the standard of morality in Israel back then? The Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and the ones included in it, handed down at the time of Moses. So the Mosaic Law was the standard for righteousness and following it. Well, these people who were sinners were people who basically made really no attempt to follow Mosaic Law. I mean, everyone knew that you could never follow it perfectly, but these are people that just out, outright just abandoned the Mosaic Law and habitually sinned against it, disregarded it. So these would be people who were known, say, for violence or always scheming to do evil or prostitutes and things like that. So Jesus is hanging out with the rejects of society, the people that no one really associated with. And the Pharisees did not appreciate this one iota. If Jesus was going to hang out with anyone, it would be people like them, the religious leaders of the day, but definitely not the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, before we move on to how Jesus responded to this, I want you to notice something really amazing in verse 9. Look at how Jesus even gained access to this community of tax collectors and sinners. In verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he got up and followed him. And then it says in verse 10, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and started dining with him. So at first read, it's not clear that Jesus was introduced to this community by Matthew. Not totally clear, but Luke is very helpful because Luke gives us the exact same account and tells us what really happened. You can write this in your Bible margin of your Bible, if you like, Luke 5.27. In Luke 5.27, it says this, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, who was defined as Matthew in Mark 3.18, by the way. People in biblical times often had two names, like Simon and Peter, right? Saul and Paul, things like that. So Levi is Matthew. He sees Levi sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up left everything and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. This is amazing. The Lord was introduced to all of Matthew's friends. His own social group within the nation of Israel. There's an important lesson for us, I believe, here. As we seek to be used by God as we reach the lost in this community, there may be relationships that you have right now with one or two individuals that are part of a community that are outside your social norms. So let's say, for example, you're, you belong to the Pickleball Club, and that's your deal in Okotoks. But then you meet one person um, from another community, maybe a new neighbor moves in, and they happen to be part of... Um, like a book reading club. Well, all of a sudden, you're not a book reader, nor do you have access into that community. But because of your neighbor who becomes your friend, who's part of that club, you now have access into that community that you never had before. So now you get to be part of the pickleball club and the book reading club in Okotoks. But you're not joining the club because you love books. You're joining the club because you love Jesus and you love others. And you want everyone in that book club to know who he is. 
That's the heart of Christ, isn't it? That's the heart of Christ. All it takes is one relationship to gain access, and we can then share the Lord's love and offer forgiveness and mercy to all people. But one more lesson emerges from the calling of Matthew I don't want you to miss. Think about the kind of person Jesus asked to follow him, but not only follow him, become one of his disciples, and eventually one of the twelve in leading his church in Acts. He's one of the twelve men called to be the start of leading the church in Acts. Look at the kind of guy this guy is. He's not exactly the most morally upstanding in society. He's not the one with a clean checkered or without a clean uh, with a clean past. He's the reject of society. He's the one who's got a, been defrauding people to get wealthy. He's got probably very little morals in terms of how he views life. In terms of like his, his number one factor would be often greed, and the desire to get wealthy. He's a very much a broken person. But that means nothing to Christ. Christ calls him as he is. Again, this is important for us. It doesn't matter what you and I have in terms of a past. It doesn't matter what our career is. It's not a factor as to whether, we'll, whether Christ will call you to follow him or, by use, or be by used by him in mighty ways. Your education, your training, your athletic ability, your musical excellence, all of it is really irrelevant as a starting place for the Lord to use you. The only qualification you need is His grace and the willingness to respond to His call to follow. The starting place for being used by the Lord is a relationship with Him. Once that relationship is established, He can use you even to lead a church. Now I want to share one thing with you before we move on. This was my experience when I first started to hear the truth about Christianity. This goes back about 20 years, and uh, I attended the Evangelical Free Church in town for three years. Everything the pastor said, George, Pastor George said at that church services, I believe to be true. Now, I wasn't living in accordance with what he was saying, and at the time I wasn't, didn't give my life to Christ in a fully trustworthy way. But I believed what he was saying was true. But here's where I made a big error, and I want to say this in case you're in the same place as me. I would not commit my life to Christ because of one factor. I believed that I had to clean up my own act and make a way greater effort to become more morally upright and morally upstanding and believe that um, before he would accept me and before I could um, actually commit to him. So I went something like this, Lord, I do trust you. I do know who you are. I know what George is saying is true, but I'm not going to give your life to you because I actually believe that I need to clean up this, this, and this, and this, and then I'll commit. Until I know I can be the perfect Christian and uphold all of your ways, I won't commit. Is that what Christ did with Matthew? Not even close. He could have robbed somebody of money five minutes before the calling. And he said, come as you are. Don't wait. 
And I learned a real lesson of humility. Because three years later, I committed my life because I was ready to, to be upstanding and to give my life to him, clean up my act. Within a few months, I went through extreme moral failure. After making this pledge of allegiance, I fell into a huge pattern of sin. And it took the Lord to redeem me from that, again, through grace and forgiveness. If you're not coming to Christ because you believe you have to clean up your life first before you come to Him, you've missed the call of salvation. Jesus said, while we were sinners, Christ died for you. He said, while you were an enemy of the cross, Christ died for you. The only qualification you need to follow and be used by Him is His love and forgiveness and offer forgiveness for you. Do not make your own righteousness the qualifier. You will end up like me and end up like a Pharisee. As we've said a few times already though, the Pharisees were not impressed with Jesus' choice of friends. He did, they didn't appreciate the outcasts of society. So let's look at how Jesus responds. In verse 12, But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In order to understand the Lord's response, we have to go to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Now, that's where he makes that quote from, is Hosea. Now, Hosea is a prophet in Israel during one of the most, um, during one of the reign of one of the worst kings ever to live, Jeroboam II. The nation under his leadership is moving into moral failure under his leadership in increasing measures. Hosea comes to the prophet and warns Israel and says, listen, nation, listen, Jews, if you don't smarten up, Assyria is coming to destroy you. Remember Assyria from last week, that's who Jonah was sent to, to preach repentance. So he says, Israel, you smarten up, give your life back to the Lord, love him and others properly, or else you will be destroyed. Now the reasons for moral failure and their spiritual failure are listed in chapters 4 through 10. So the first thing he says in chapter 4, in verse 6, he says, My people are destroyed from their lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They've forgotten the law of Moses. But more than this, this knowledge he was speaking of was more than intellectual knowledge. It was relational knowledge. It was relational knowledge. He wanted them to know him in a way that transformed their lives. It was a knowledge that was formed out of a, a love relationship, not just merely checking boxes. He then speaks about their hypocrisy of their worship. And so he speaks in chapter 4 of their social injustices. He says, There is swearing and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. They were committing idolatry. Chapter 4, verse 12, My people consult a wooden idol. And a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. And the number one God in those days was Baal, or Baal, the false god. Uh, political alliances they were making with other nations. Remember what God said? You will have me as your king, 
and you follow me alone and trust me for your national and political and military security. So much so that if you actually obey me, your borders will never be threatened by an enemy nation. You'll win all victories that come against you. So what do they do? They say, nah, God won't protect us. And so they, in 7-11, they say, Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, is easily deceived and senseless. They now call to Egypt. They now turn to Assyria. So Israel turns to two foreign countries for protection. Ironically, Assyria is the one that turns on them and wipes them out in 722 BC. So here's what's happening. It's in the middle of this that uh, God makes his, or Hosea makes a declaration that what God desires is actually compassion and not sacrifice. It's in the middle of this. And why that's important is because they're still going to the temple in all of this to participate in animal sacrifices is this everything is fine between them and God. So making political alliances, murdering people, you know, uh, uh, worshiping false gods, stealing from one another, not loving one another, and yet they're going to the church, they're heading to church, knowing there's moral failure in their own lives, unrepentant, unwilling to change, and banking on the ceremonies held in church to basically make them right with God. And so Hosea warns Israel in 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you know why that's so powerful, friends? Who instituted the sacrificial system? Whose idea was it? Not Israel's, it was God's. God instituted the sacrificial system, and then he says, stop the sacrificial system. Stop it. Because your love, your love for me and love for others is absolutely void. The same thing happened in Isaiah's day. Look at these powerful words in Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. Now ironically, this is Israel. And he gives them the title of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and blood, blood lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. In other words, I can't stand your church services. Contemporary. I hate, with all my, I hate them with all my being. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In Isaiah's day, Israel was doing the same thing as in Hosea's day. They were banking on the ceremonial practices and the ritualistic observance of different things, void of love for God and for others. 
And they were doing it as if God owed them something. Well, because I'm doing these ceremonies, God, well, you know, you owe me this. The result, Hosea says, and even Isaiah as well, was you're not going to play that game with God. In fact, in Hosea's day, Assyria will turn on you and bring destruction. And they did. So with this in mind, let's look at what Jesus said again. He said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Lord's mission was to basically bring the gospel, his offer of love and forgiveness, to the broken-hearted people in that day. It wasn't to seek to observe, like, um, or supersede that. Or, or the ceremonial practice of the day were not to supersede his love for others and the mercy offered. Yes, they participated in certain things and did so, but it was to come from a loving heart for God and for others. The ceremonies themselves were not the identifying marker of a relationship, they were love expressions. That's how to serve God. The Pharisees had become identical to the Jews in Hosea's day. They were living a life full of what they considered essential in terms of trying to earn God's favor as if God owed them. And they neglected to fill their duty as the religious leaders of the day. And so Jesus came hard on them. Now pull out your sheet and listen to this. Now I've taken 50%, somewhere around 40-50% of the material away, just to highlight a few things. But listen to the indictment. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, um, and you will not let, sorry, I don't know what that NR means, or nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teach of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much as a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teach of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Luke says, love. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And won't you teach us a lot, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. And sure enough, they did, because they spearheaded the crucifixion of Christ. 
Rome killed them, but it was the Pharisees plotting to do so. The Pharisees were like the people in Hosea and Isaiah's day. They had made the ceremonial practices and the rituals of the church community to mean the, the means by which they were attached to God, not love. They deemed people, certain people unworthy of God's grace. And the attitude was this, well, if God must reject sinners like them, so therefore we do as well. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy, it's not the righteous people that know God already who need healing. It's those who are broken hearted. So where is our emphasis? And I look in the mirror when I say this. Is it more important that you try to get to church every Sunday than loving your neighbor? Is it more important that you were baptized as a kid than seeking for God to change your character? Maybe you're struggling with some things in your lives like pride and unforgiveness and anger and gossip, lying, cheating. And you're more concerned that, well, I was baptized once, as opposed to worrying about how God is trying to shape you. When you participate in communion, is it really important to take it a particular way and to be here for it, when the Lord would say, I don't really, really care that much if you take it, if you're not seeking to love me, let me transform you in how you love other people. Is prayer really important to you? You have to get it in at a particular time of day, in a particular certain way. And then right after the prayers, you turn around and yell at your family. <laughs> and that's a regular occurrence in the home. Is it really important to get to Bible studies and take detailed notes, but then fail to live for God and love others the way He intended us to? You see how easy it is to be a Pharisee? You see how easy it is to, de to desire sacrifice more than compassion? I can fall into the trap just the same way as you can. And that's why we need the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. Because without Him, we'll never be able to accomplish these things. There's a powerful verse I want to leave you with in Galatians. This is crazy when you think about it. When you go through like Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and all these, Exodus, you look at all the laws that are out in there. And then, and then, Paul summarizes it this way, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. Think of the power of that statement. Void of love and compassion for others. All of our church attendance, baptisms, communions, regularity in prayer, our Bible studies mean nothing if we neglect the very thing that Jesus really cares about. He said, it's not the healthy. Sorry. He says, it's, yeah, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but there's those who are sick. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners into relationship.
So I'm going to leave you with a series of questions. Who are the tax collectors and sinners in your life? Who are the people that you struggle with, that you sort of deem them unworthy of God's grace? Who are they? Are they family members? Are they your neighbor? Are they the NDP? Do you share more of the Jesus, more of Jesus' heart towards them? Or the Pharisees? Another couple questions. What unique community has God positioned you for? Jesus entered the the community of the tax collectors and sinners by the relationship with one person. What world and community have you been given access to through the relationship that you have with certain individuals that are outside your social norm? Are you willing to share in the heart of Matthew who couldn't wait to introduce Jesus to his community? And finally, in what ways have I desired sacrifice more than a heart of compassion? Have you made ceremonial practices and rituals more important than loving God and loving others? What areas in our lives, in terms of our character, do we need to submit to God? What do we need to change in order to love the way He desires? Okay, well, why don't we just close in prayer? Lord, thank you for your word and how you convict us, but not in a way that condemns us. Conviction and condemnation are two separate things. Conviction says, your actions are wrong and I can help you. Condemnation says, you basically, you are unfixable and you're stuck in your, in your ways and stuck in your sin. Thank you, Lord, this message is one of conviction. It just says, hey, we aren't going to always get compassion right we tend to move towards sacrifice at times, but at the same time, we can be like Matthew and just come as we are. And you can use us uh, no matter what background and what moral failings we've had, Lord. Thank you that it's by grace that we are saved and it's by grace that we live and that all actions that we do are just merely a love expression for you and not in any way as a means of trying to earn your favor. Lord, we give you thanks for the word, for the openness to speak it publicly. In Jesus' name, amen.